Before we get into today's episode, I have some exciting news for you. February is going to be a big month for me. Baby number two is on the way. My family, our daughter, wife and I, we're really excited and we can't wait. And with that coming, I plan to take several weeks off in February and March. And with that, I also want to feature several guest posts and maybe even a few guest podcast appearances in Trapital during my paternity leave. So, do you have a unique story to share? I'm looking for insightful breakdowns, thought-provoking perspectives, and well-researched stories that we could feature in Trapital, in our weekly newsletter, on our website, and also potentially have a discussion about it on the podcast as well. The quality bar is high, and I'm excited to see what comes through. So there's a link to submit your guest post in the show notes. So if you have something to say that you think is unique, look at the link that we have in the show notes, read the description, and if that fits something that you're interested, please follow up. Would love to hear from you. I still haven't seen an NBA basketball player outside of Jordan have a shoe that felt like it really had its own moment the way that Reebok did with Allen Iverson. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. It wasn't that long ago that Reebok was head-to-head with the biggest companies in athletic apparel in the world. Reebok surpassed Nike in annual sales in 1989, And by the late 90s, Reebok had Shaquille O'Neal, Allen Iverson, two of the most popular stars in the NBA, two rappers in their own right, and it sparked the company's shift to move and lean even more into hip-hop culture. By the early 2000s, this company had partnerships in place with Jay-Z and 50 Cent, two of the biggest artists in the world at the time, and the company had official jersey partnerships in place with the NBA, the NHL, and the NFL. So what happened? In this episode, we dive deep. We talk about the rise and fall of Reebok, all the things that led to its booming success in the 80s, some of the ups and downs it had in the 90s, some of the success it had in the early 2000s as well, but then we also talk about the acquisition of Adidas, why it happened, what happened, what went wrong, and how this company turned into a CrossFit brand that became a shell of itself, and despite some mid-2010s attempts to get big names in hip-hop like Rick Ross and Future and Kendrick Lamar, why it still wasn't quite enough. So come join us for this one. I'm joined by my guy, Zach O'Malley Greenberg. So come lace up your pumps and let's go take a trip down memory lane. All right, today we have a deep dive on Reebok and its influence in music. I'm joined by my guy, Zach O'Malley Greenberg. And this is the first one that you and I are doing in person. Yeah, I love this. We should make a habit of it. We'll meet, yeah. to meet up in Texas or something every month, you know, in the middle. <laughs> yeah, we'll just have a Dallas show that we post up and yeah, let's just make it in. Right? Yeah, Austin, let's do Austin. Austin, yeah, that's a, that's a lot better. I'm glad you're excited to do Reebok because... This is a company that has had an interesting journey in music and its influence there. We've both respectively talked a lot about fashion products and their influence and combinations in sports and music too. And I feel like Reebok is one of those brands that we saw the rise, we saw the fall. And in many ways, those are the interesting stories to dig into. Yeah, and I think it's kind of wild. I mean, when you look back at it, you know, Reebok, there was a minute there in the 90s when it was going head-to-head with Nike. I mean, they were very much on the same footing, at least in my recollection. You know, as a kid, you you were kind of either you know, a Reebok kid or a Nike kid or something. And I think, I feel like Adidas wasn't really even in the conversation in the way that it is today, um, you know, and, and I think 
when you look at what happened subsequently, so much of it had to do with how those different brands operated in the music world. And, and that had such a great, you know, effect on their respective footwear businesses, which just like goes to show the power of music and of course, hip hop specifically, as we always talk about. Yeah. Thinking about growing up as well, it felt like Nike and Reebok on equal footing. I mean, the numbers proved it in 1989. Reebok was actually ahead of Nike in terms of sales, but you felt it in terms of what people wore too. Did you have Reeboks growing up? No, I was always a Nike kid. Uh, I remember I had this nanny who was super cool. She was, uh, you know, Valley Girl, uh, you know, from like, uh, I think Menlo Park. And she always had these like crisp white freestyles. Um, and I just remember, you know, it was like the little British flag on them. And uh, and so I could have like always associated that with with the cool, but like, you know, I don't know, a different a different kind of cool. Uh, um, and uh, and I think, you know, in a way it wasn't necessarily linked in my mind to sports or culture or, or anything. It was sort of like, I don't know, she seemed hopelessly cool and fashionable to me as a little kid. And uh, and and I was more sort of into the sports side of things. And Nike was, you know, really big at sports. I was big into Jordan and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess maybe I saw that being kind of a dividing line uh, of like where I of where I put my my allegiances or, you know, my preferences. So that was late 80s. And then as the 90s went on, it was I just remember Reebok becoming bigger and bigger. And, you know, when you would go to the shoe store to try, you know, try on your next big pair of shoes, it's like they'd bring out the Reeboks and the Nikes. And I was always kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm a Nike kid. You know, like I want the I want the Jordans or I want the, the Penny Hardaways. Uh, those, yep. were, those were like, I think, really underrated. Um, a couple a couple of pretty great ones there. We could do a whole episode of that, maybe. But uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it really it really was toe to toe. What kind of kid were you growing up? I definitely wanted Nikes more. I think I probably got Reeboks more often, I would say. I had the pumps at one point, and we'll talk about those. But I'm glad you mentioned the freestyles because I think that shoe was actually a game changer for Reebok. This was a company in 1983, $12 million in sales. It wasn't necessarily booming, but by the end of 1989, $1.7 billion in sales. And it had exceeded what Nike was doing that same year. And in redoing a lot of the research for this, there were two shoes that really made the difference there, the freestyle, and that was part of their whole thing where one of the executives saw that his wife was in some aerobics class, and in the aerobics class, everyone was either wearing running sneakers or no sneakers at all. So he's like, okay, we need something that taps in here. So it was really cool to see how they tapped into the women's footwear market. And then several years later, the pump comes out, they have Dominique, they have D Brown, who wore those shoes iconically at the 1991 dunk contest. So you're seeing Reebok get more involved with the culture too. But then there were also some challenges, I think, that Reebok started to have in the 90s around the time that it felt like, you know, still relevant. But the Dream Team challenge was one of the things where the Reebok team had got this official bid to be the official logo partner and be the official jersey for the awards ceremony and the awards jersey that they won but of course michael jordan as you mentioned earlier famously a nike athlete there were all these stipulations there and they pretty much ended that so the players wore the reebok stuff but they covered the logo so i feel like that in some ways was almost a signal of where things could eventually go for reebok because they still had plenty of highs in the 90s of course, they signed Shaq, 1992. He's one of the biggest stars. You see that guy everywhere, movies and rap albums and stuff like that. But yeah, it ended up being a tougher decade than people probably would have thought it was. Yeah, I mean, going from kind of coming out of nowhere 
to being toe to toe with Nikes to, to getting a little bit tougher than people thought. I mean, it was quite a whirlwind. But that that moment with uh, Michael Jordan, I thought was it was it was so Jordan, right? I mean, um, the fact that you know <laughs> he he I think his solution to it was to wrap himself in the American flag. I mean, and what an elegant solution that is. Like nobody's gonna nobody's gonna sort of like complain about you know it's it's a bad look for Reebok <laughs> you know to to criticize him for wrapping himself in the American flag or something like that but um you know talk about a great business decision uh you know a, a, a way of kind of slipping out of some controversy um I, I think that's a, that's another underrated uh, brilliant business move by Jordan Reebok got the Isaiah Thomas a dream team <laughs> treatment situation <laughs> yeah, exactly it's funny to think back because I think for me, there was definitely a turning point once Allen Iverson came into the picture. So they signed him in 1996. And while Shaq was popular, one of the things that you had heard over the years and about selling sneakers is that they felt like big men don't necessarily sell shoes. They felt like the shoes are more so structured for them to have the sturdiness of them doing these post moves and stuff like that. In your average kid that's in the driveway, they're trying to replicate what someone like Allen Iverson's trying to do. They're trying to replicate all of these things. But Allen Iverson, of course, in a lot of ways became the embodiment of hip hop culture, at least for the NBA. And I think Reebok eventually did lean into a lot of that. But as you were talking about before we started recording, it's almost like Reebok was a little bit late to that perspective just compared to where some of the other brands were. Totally. And, and I think you're right. I mean, the thing about big men don't sell shoes, it's not they don't sell shoes at all, but I think I think it's kind of that kids want to fly, right? And and uh, and and that's what Nike, you know, especially through Jordan, kind of had the monopoly on. Uh, you know, air, right? Nike Air, Air Jordan, like you, you want to be in the air, you want to be flying. I mean, I remember being a little kid, you know, I would try on these new shoes, these Nikes, and they had like the little air bubbles. And I, and I was telling my parents, like, see, the, I, it bounces, it makes me fly, it makes me jump higher. It's like, it doesn't make you jump higher, that's ridiculous. Uh, but but the marketing was so great on it. And and I think it was because Nike aligned itself to, you know, to, to basketball players who could fly basically. Uh, and, and Reebok maybe, at least at first with Shaq, was more um, around the big men. But like you say, I, you know, there are the D. Browns, Dominique Wilkins. So, you know, there were some people who could fly in there too. Um, I think I think maybe Nike just did a better job of, of selling the, the flight aspect uh, than, than Reebok did. I think Nike did a better job of like selling in general. Like one of the things that people have often said about Nike is that this is a company that excels at marketing. They are selling you marketing. They happen to sell you these products that line up with the marketing, but marketing is what they've done so well. I'm thinking about Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Serena, all these athletes that they've built up in that way. And while I do think that Reebok had some aspects of that, in a lot of ways, the leadership from the company, at least from some of the research I've done, was a bit more focused on how do we make this company do this thing that it does well in terms of selling shoes. So the vision was almost constrained to a fault in terms of trying to optimize being a good apparel company versus that Nike kind of had this bigger, loftier, you know, big, hairy, ambitious goal yeah. that kept it grounded. And even in a way, one of the things that stuck out, one of the, the CEOs at the time, I think his name was, last name was Fireman, he said something to the extent of even though they were beating Nike, they felt like it wasn't going to be for long because they were focused on trying to just operate a successful apparel company from their Boston, Massachusetts headquarters and Nike's trying to take over the world. Yeah. And, and maybe you could kind of look at it like, 
the focus was how do we sell shoes and and Nike was sort of how how do we tell a story and you know maybe it, in in some cases the how do we sell shoes i mean you know that gets you to sell more shoes right um but in the long term the how do we tell the story how do how do we make you fly that's that's how you win um you know in the long term and having that imagination and 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 I think it's kind of you know what you did with the with the names that you had on board, right? Um, it, it wasn't necessarily who you had, although having Michael Jordan, eh, like that's kind of hard to beat. But how do you, how do you tell the story of, of those you know of those uh, uh, athletes that you have, um, and specifically you know how do you connect it uh, more and more to hip hop, which uh, was becoming you know already like one of the dominant aspects of global culture, and yeah, I, I think I think. As the years went on, Reebok tried, but it was almost a little bit too late. Um, it, but but that didn't mean that they didn't do some interesting and experimental things. Yeah, I think some of the stuff they did made sense. And I almost feel like AI benefited from it a bit more than maybe Shaq did. I feel like Shaq, in a lot of ways, you think of all the other stuff, whether it's Shazam or his rap albums or Steel or all the other things that he did. But I think they really tried with Allen Iverson, and this is where you saw folks like Steve Stout getting involved, and they had this sub-aspect, or I don't want to call it a sub-brand, but one of, I guess, their air equivalent was Blacktop. So they had Blacktop as their sub-brand, which is supposed to be a little bit more street ball and that mentality, which they feel like AI captured a bit more, and then the sneakers, and then AI leaned into it themselves with his personality and just him himself being a rapper, too. But then that the commercials that stick out, they had commercials for the AI and the A6. Do you remember those? Oh, vaguely in the back of my mind. Yeah. How did, how, how did they go? So so the A5 one, that was with AI and Jadakiss. Check them out. It's the new A5s. You got to rock them. They even put a zone in the league to try to stop them. He's the answer and the problem. You don't want it with the way that So the two of them had a rap song that essentially was like into the commercial and you saw AI it was black and white. It was, it was pretty cool. And then they did another one with his shoe that dropped the next year. But that A5 one was huge because that's the one that launched 2001. And then after that, AI gets his lifetime deal that he gets ends up getting from Reebok. And I think it worked really well for him because I still haven't seen a NBA basketball player outside of Jordan have a shoe that felt like it really had its own moment the way that Reebok did with Allen Iverson. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I guess what's surprising to me is that it, you know, it didn't manage to carry through um, in the same way. I mean, I guess what stopped it from having the same long, uh, longstanding impact uh, that that Jordan had on Nike. I mean, obviously you're talking about way different scale, but you know, did they not like lean into that enough? You know, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I was thinking about this before we before we recorded, and this is obviously a, a tough part, just given you know Allen Iverson and his career. But I think a lot of us know that he's someone that. His career also peaked in a lot of ways, 2000, 2001. He has that NBA Finals run. He wins MVP while the A5 and A6 commercials are happening. And at least in like my high school, that jersey went platinum. You saw that AI jersey everywhere. The sneakers were really popular too at the time. But 
AI someone that by the time he was in his early mid thirties, he was a bit of a journeyman in the NBA. You know, he was yeah. traded. He had a few good years with the Denver Nuggets, but by the time he was with like the Pistons and the Memphis Grizzlies, it was something. We also know that AI had some alcohol problems and things were always a bit challenging for him. And I feel like because he took so many hits from being this hip hop forward and someone that leaned more into what they would say, quote unquote, urban culture with the tattoos of the braids, people almost made him seem much more of like a pariah in some ways. And not only did he take the hits for that, I think we never saw AI become like a mogul in the way that like Jordan has. And I think even in the conversations you and I have had with Jay-Z, what you continue to do after the impact you make helps your legacy live on in a lot of ways. The fact that Jay-Z is just continuing to go up and up and up helps all the stuff that we talk about from him during the Rockefeller records days. The fact that Jordan just continue to you know be a billionaire and buy and sell the Charlotte Hornets yeah, 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 helps yeah. the Jordan brand live on in a way that I mean we'll get to what Allen Iverson is doing now but I wonder how much of that also hurt a Reebok to some extent I mean I, I would almost wonder if you could compare it to sort of you could liken AI and Jordan to DMX and Jay-Z like at their peak you know uh they were like just as high and you could argue that at um, DMX's peak, he was even a little hotter than Jay-Z ever was at his hottest. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to argue that AI was ever, like, above Jordan or even really on that plane. But, when I mean, in that early aughts kind of moment. He crossed him over, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I do and, think what made AI special, though, is that he tapped into an aspect of black culture and being yourself and making people feel seen in a way that Jordan didn't. Jordan was very much a product of the 90s idealized black man, not necessarily in a bad way, but I think that AI was a more unapologetic about who he was and he took a lot of hits for that, but I do feel like he resonated with people that Jordan never did. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to the DMX versus Jay-Z analogy, right? There was something maybe more viscerally appealing about AI or about DMX that like could really connect in, in a way that uh, Jordan or Jay-Z couldn't, where they might seem like a little more aloof because they were all they did was win, <laughs> you know, DJ Khaled. But, uh, but really, all they did was win, it seemed, and, and it was harder to relate to that. And if you were looking at the, sort of the DMX or the Iverson side of things, it was like the underdog, you know, you like really had to fight for every, you know, every little bit of success. And, and so there was like a, a way of relishing the success a little bit more, even if it seemed kind of more fleeting. And, um, and, and then that was like, a really important moment in time, but, you know, sort of burned so brightly that it maybe couldn't sustain over, over, you know, the long term quite at that, at that intensity. Right. It was, yeah. it was so close to the sun yeah. that it, yeah. it was just tough to, it was just tough to maintain. Yeah. yeah. That's a good comparison. Yeah. That's definitely a good one. I think this also led into an interesting era for Reebok too, because Certain things do start to go their way to some extent. 2002, they get this big contract with the NFL to then be the lead jersey sponsor for them. They also get one with the NA, with the NBA, and they end up getting one with the NHL too. And that's huge because you have tens of millions of people that watch sports on a regular basis, especially in the early 2000s. And you get to see your you get your logo every time Peyton Manning or Tom Brady are throwing or every time that – Shaq and Kobe are playing basketball like that's huge for them but they also ended up in a little bit of a crossroads because 2002 
LeBron James is a high school senior. Everyone's trying to court this guy. He, of course, ends up going with Nike. And then Reebok's like, oh, shit. Okay, what what do we do here? We feel like we miss out on a generational talent. And then that then starts the pivot for them to lead more into hip-hop and seeing that as an opportunity to make these athletes people, not these athletes, but to make these stars people that we can build shoes around the same way we do with athletes. Yeah, and I think a perfect example of that is what they did with Jay-Z. And there's a whole chapter of this uh, in my book, Empire State of Mind, where I talk about his Rucker Park basketball team. And so for those who don't know, the Rucker is sort of this legendary streetball uh, tournament that happens in Upper Manhattan um, every summer. And back in the day, it used to be uh, that that various drug lords in the area would like field teams of top street ballers and they would get a couple of NBA players to come in. And it was just this like pride thing, uh, you know, bragging rights and whatever. And then over time, it evolved more into like you know, hip hop stars would come and have a team. And so in this particular year, uh, 2003, Jay-Z comes in, he has his team uh, and and his big rival is Fat Joe, you know, uh, and he's got his t- terror squad team. And so, but what Jay-Z does is he decides to, to like put everything together. It's 2003, he's got his retirement album coming out, the Black Album, and he's just got this new sneaker deal with Reebok, uh, the S. Carter sneaker. And, and you may recall, it's sort of like, you know, classic like plain kind of styling you know white um sneaker low top and um and so he calls his rucker park team the s dot carter team he gets this bus you know emblazoned with the s dot carter sneaker logo and then every night you know once a week or whatever when they had the the games uh they meet at the 4040 club just which just opened and they get on the bus and they go up to the rucker and they you know and they do their thing and so you know, part of the crew in those days, Jay-Z had just started dating Beyonce. Um, you know, Puffy was hanging around. Uh, LeBron had become buddies with Jay-Z. Although he was uh, just been signed by Nike, he was getting into this Reebok bus, right? Uh, and then Jay-Z recruited all these NBA players. I think he had Tracy McGrady. He had um, Eddie Curry, Lamar Odom. Um, you know, I, th- I think like... Jamal Crawford played, Sebastian Telfair. And then he had ultimately uh, LeBron was like maybe going to play. It was not clear. Uh, maybe he's going to play in the final game. And then for the, the final game, it ended up being the showdown with Jay-Z's team versus Fat Joe's team. And Fat Joe had like Stefan Marbury and, you know, all these kind of like rugged NBA players. And, um, and, and Shaq was in town. He was going to be like the secret weapon. And they were, you know, he was going to, Fat Freddy had you know, filmed one of the S. Carter commercials. And so he's filming this whole documentary about the Rucker Park team. And like the day they're supposed to go up and play the final game, the lights just go out. And it was the great blackout of 2003. And, oh, yeah. and so they had to cancel the game and they rescheduled it. But Jay-Z had his thing all tightly scheduled. And the next day he flew off to Europe with Beyonce on this big trip. And then, you know, he had to be back like within a week in order to to, you know, do the VMAs or something and then go on, she was going on tour. And so he missed the rescheduled game. They never played. They technically forfeited. There's a Joe, uh, fat Joe line about this. Uh, my players didn't even have to play to win the championship or something like that. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, uh, but anyway, long way of saying this is all an outgrowth of the Reebok partnership that he had, that Jay-Z had. And it did phenomenally well. I mean, the Estee Carter sneaker was the fastest selling sneaker that they had so far. I think it sold out like, you know, the first 10,000 pairs in seconds and half a million over that summer. And they had some really interesting promotions. Like when they first put it on sale, 
a few, it was a few months before the Black Album came out, but they had a CD with all these tracks from the Black Album, or like snippets of it. It's like a brilliant rollout, great for Jay-Z, all this cross-marketing and everything. Um, you know, so so that did really well. And I guess, you know, what I wonder is sort of, you know, why didn't that turn into something more long-lasting, right? Um, why did that not become, you know, whatever name any other successful uh shoe or you know anything else jay-z seems to touch uh seems to turn to gold why didn't this last in that way yeah i think the other thing that's crazy about that moment too is that you have the s dots and then you also have the g units not too far after that yeah and 2003 is such a big year for both of them you got the black album as you mentioned g unit has their beg for mercy album which comes out a couple months before that and um, and Stunt 101, Lloyd Banks has a line where he shouts out the G-Unit sneakers that he's pointing to them. So this is the moment. They have two of the biggest artists and groups that are doing everything. Everything's exploding. And when I looked into this, I saw a few things that stuck out. So there's this sneaker analyst, Matthew Powell. Um, I actually reached out to him for an article a while back. I mean, just, I wouldn't be surprised if you probably connected with them at yep. some point, too. Oh, yeah. And he, he, had, he had a few thoughts on, like, why this didn't take off. His first thought was on this a supply and demand issue and that they that he felt that they flooded the market with the shoes. 5,000 ended up selling. Great. Let's let's make it 50,000. 50,000 sell. Great. Let's make it 500,000. So they were able to maximize it from that perspective, but they didn't quite capture the aspect of leaving people anticipating for the shoe. And this is something that Nike had perfected in a lot of ways with Jordan. And unfortunately, some of that limited scarcity has led to people having you know, violent incidents over these shoes. But on the other side, it is something that always kept the allure going. So they had the successful shoe, but before long, they had all of these quantities that they were making. So the shoe, because it was so accessible, then they had too many of them. Then you see the shoes on sale at your these secondary reseller outlets like TJ Maxx and Marshalls and stuff like that. And once your stuff is there, it's not cool anymore from that perspective. It's no different than like a, a brand like Zoo York. You know, when Zoo York first came out, everyone thought it was cool or Ed Hardy. But then the moment passes, they flood the market and then all those things are, you can buy them at Marshalls, right? So I think that was one reason that um, Matt Powell has shared. And then the other reason, this one I'm still thinking about, but they felt like it was a little bit early in terms of hype culture and just where demand was and stuff like that. I still think that Jordan and that brand had showed how they were able to maintain that. So I'm not quite buying that reason, but I do think the first one is legit. Yeah, and I think, right, I mean, every year that a Jordan came out, you know, it, it's, oh, it's the Jordan 11. Like, oh, I mean, the Jordan 11s are great. So, you know, that was <laughs> But like every year, I mean, I, you know, I have a cousin who would go out and buy the Jordans every year that the new ones came out, even the ugly ones. There are a lot of ugly ones. There are like a lot of bad Jordans out there, by the way. Um, but like, it doesn't matter. It, it was an event. People had to, you know, line up and do it, and it was just a thing. You know, it was yeah, it was. The, I think the beginning of, of the hype culture. You know, we're gonna have a limited edition drop. We we got to go do this, and I I liken it to um, you know, to a band that underplays. I remember when Bruno Mars first started blowing up. Like they deliberately, a lot of bands do this, but you know, deliberately underplayed. You know, like five hundred seat venues. You know, thousand cap. You know, type of things when they could have been doing amphitheaters four or five thousand. You know, and maybe selling like ninety percent, ninety five percent, making more money. But you know, they underplayed. 
they they did you know these these tours early on like maybe there wasn't really more than one album worth of stuff to sing so it's like cool we'll we'll do this you know we'll have like a couple openers or something and we'll we'll build up demand and then the next tour you go straight to arenas and and i think that's you know that's the way to do it that's what um i think yeezy ultimately did uh to to become as huge as it was i mean like we were saying earlier reebok was maybe too focused on selling shoes instead of telling the story uh I would also add, you know, it was a weird time to be um, getting on the Jay-Z train. He was about to retire, you know, and he was about to go become an executive, which is really cool and was great for him, but also not like the thing that people want to go and buy a shoe about, you know, (laughs) like, oh, I want to have the sneaker that the dude in the corner office wears. Like, I don't know about that. I think you want to wear the shoe that somebody uh, wears who's playing basketball or like is, you know, at the forefront of fashion or something like that. You don't want the old guy sneaker. And and that's kind of what it was. And Jay-Z was transitioning into into that role, Um, you know, and and he himself, if you think about his career, I I divide it into old Jay-Z, new Jay-Z. Uh, which is, you know, not as stark, let's say, as Kanye, <laughs> old Kanye, new Kanye. But um, I put the dividing line around 2003, and that's when he shifted from this kind of nonstop, you know, shock and awe approach, album every year, um, you know, flooding the market, much like Reebok, uh, to the more of the scarcity model, you know, not putting out an album every year, maybe not even putting out an album every two years. Now it's like five years between albums, something like that. Uh, but, you know, doing more exclusive stuff, champagne, cognac, whatever. And, you know, he had already realized that he was kind of going to go in that direction. Uh, but Reebok was still sort of paying him and promoting his shoes in the old way. Um, and so, you know, I think there was a bit of a disconnect there. And again, that's why, even though it sold really well, there wasn't going to be that kind of longevity. I think also, if you start out with a shoe that is kind of boring, Maybe people buy it at first because it's new and, and different. It's like, you know, I think he was the first non-athlete that they gave a shoe deal to. So that's that's cool. Um, but when you start out with a boring shoe, like how are you going to like really revise it every year to be new and different? Like when Jordan came out, the silhouette, I mean, you know, the the colors, everything, it was really different, right? And so although um, you could see a through line through all the Jordans, you know, much like you could see in the design of a Porsche 911 or something, they're all different, but like you can see like the baseline of a silhouette, um, you know, th- there's something exciting there. And and when it starts exciting, starts out exciting, you can more easily go to other exciting places. When it starts boring, you can't just sort of like completely redo it and, ha- you know, I mean, I guess you could, but it, it becomes something else. And, and it really felt like, like a one-off shoe so unless you become the Adidas Samba or something like that, that's just a staple that everybody wears all the time, you know, you, you're not going to have that like evergreen demand. And I think probably that's what went wrong for Jay-Z. It's interesting to look at the S. Carter sneaker that Reebok put out and compare it to the G unit. Very similar. I think both very boring shoes and they both have that like little script on it um, with the G unit or S. Carter logo. Um you know, I, I think that's part of it, even though you had, I think Jay-Z and 50 Cent were touring together that summer um, and you had all this stuff coming together, but it was like, where where's it going to go from there? It just wasn't like that interesting a shoe. Um, and I guess the last thing is, you know, it didn't say either of their most well-known names on the shoe, right? It didn't say Jay-Z, it didn't say 50 Cent. Right. And I wonder if that somehow capped it. I mean... 
it's weird. I don't know. It somehow feels like a little corny for a shoe to say Jay-Z or 50 Cent on it in a way that it doesn't for it to say um, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. So I don't know. But I wonder if, if that, you know, somehow kind of capped the potential uh, in one way or another in the long term, even though they both did well uh, and sold like hotcakes in the beginning. Yeah. I think the point that you also made about just like Reebok's mentality about selling shoes versus Nike's about telling a story could help capture a lot of this, right? Because if you're focused on selling units and you're counting beans, you're like, okay, well, these beans work out great. Let me go push more of them as opposed to thinking more broadly about it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the, the thing is, in terms of the other artists, it's like they did so much to try to capture it, right? You had the quote out, you had the best rapper alive who was about to retire you had the hottest rapper in the world of 50 cent and then they tried to reach into all these other demos too you had lupe fiasco so you had the backpack rap covered you had daddy yankee so they were trying to lean into the uh latino and reggaeton market and they had pharrell as well so they were leading a bit more into just everything he was doing this was right around the time that he had billionaire boys club so to Reebok's credit, they definitely tried to cover the bases. But yeah, I mean, for the reasons that we discussed, things just didn't quite click there. And this is actually interesting timing because this is around the time that Adidas comes into play. So the official Adidas transaction, it actually happens in 2006, but the deal first gets announced in 2005. But the executives say that they've been talking about it for a couple of years now. And part of the attraction that Adidas had to Reebok was all the stuff that we're saying. Reebok had the cultural influence in North America, a market that Adidas wasn't as strong in. Adidas was very strong everywhere in the world, just given everything they've done with soccer and soccer's global footprint there, even some aspects of running as well. But Reebok, in many ways, didn't wasn't as strong as that. So that, in principle, was the thought of why they wanted to acquire, but unfortunately, it didn't quite turn out that way. This episode of Trapital is brought to you by our friends at Bevel. To quote the legend Mariah Carey, it's time. The holiday season is here, and our friends at Bevel have something special for Trapital readers. The company that brought you the iconic Bevel Blade is now offering a 20% discount on all of its devices for its pre-holiday sale. This promotion ends on November 19th. I've been a Bevel fan from the beginning. I bought my older brother the Razor as a holiday gift a few years ago and he still has it today. Their quality products are the secret to keeping you looking on point all holiday season long. This limited time offer ends Sunday, November 19th. Beat the holiday rush and get your Bevel device here. Go to getbevel.com or visit the link in our show notes, and that'll send you directly to the website where you can get your 20% off today. It is ironic, right, that Adidas, which is so steeped in the history of hip-hop, going back to my Adidas and Run DMC and all that, you know, the first endorsement deal uh, given to a hip-hop act by a sneaker brand, a million dollars, and was it in the mid-'80s? Um, and it's kind of wild that Adidas, you know, I guess went through a period of dormancy in in the United States at least, and that um, that it you know felt like perhaps acquiring Reebok might help boost its prospects in in hip hop and with the youth market and things like that, um, and you know I guess to go back to the Jay Z and DMX analogy in prior episodes we talked about how you know them putting out two albums uh, within a year both within a year uh, helped Def Jam get fetch a higher premium. I wonder 
you know, if if you kind of looked at the numbers, did Jay Z and Fifty Cent's shoes also um, help juice the number that Reebok got when Adidas eventually came in? Um, and you know, was maybe there was a momentum there that could have been sustained if Reebok had stayed independent? Um, you know, I, I I do think that Adidas thought like, oh, we can we can have these two brands kind of compete with each other in a healthy way, but I think ultimately, you know. Reebok got kind of crowded out, um, and you know, at maybe some of the the juice that they had, um, you know, whatever juice they had from Jay Z and Fifty Cent, which, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe it was doomed to be temporary. Uh, you know, may, maybe it was less about sort of the nature of the juice and more about <laughs> what happened on a corporate level afterward. Right, and I think that there was also a big cultural clash too that we realized because. Even though Reebok had the cultural piece in North America that Adidas didn't have, Adidas wanted that. But when Adidas actually acquired the company, they themselves said that, oh, wow, the exec- one of these executives said that this is a mess. This is a complete mess. We thought it was going to be very different. And this is something that I've heard before when people enter businesses that are more culture forward. People say it about music as well. I've heard it as well, especially around, even with, we did the Apple episode recently and some of the things that were said about like Jimmy Iovine's tenure and how people that are trying to work with endorsement deals or partnerships with talent or figures, companies that are much more engineering oriented and rigid from that perspective, they often see it as overspending and overzealous. Like, why would you do this? Almost in the same way that I think a lot of the Apple music and the Apple team were a bit like, okay, I, Drake is good, but why are you paying him $19 million? Almost in the same way, they may have been like, okay, why are you paying 50 Cent and G-Unit this amount? Why do we have these rollouts? Why do you have all these products that you're now trying to then sell to second resellers? And these are the people that you're leading your pitch deck with to tell me that you want to buy the product. There were even criticisms about them releasing too many of the Allen Iverson sneakers over the years and people feeling like those were too accessible. So I think that there were some challenges there. They ended up acquiring the company for $3.8 billion, which wasn't too much of a premium over what their sales were at the time. I think they did have over $3 billion in annual sales. But at least from a valuation perspective, from what we saw, it was a 34% premium. So they felt like they paid a lot for the company. And I remember at the time, there was a New York Times article. They interviewed Steve Stout. Steve Stout had worked with AI and Jadakiss and a few others on a lot of those campaigns. And one of his precautions was you have to treat these as two separate brands. Otherwise, this won't work. And unfortunately, I feel like that kind of rang true with how things played out in terms of where Reebok's brand went after this acquisition and where Adidas's brand went after this acquisition. Several years down the line, but like you see the Yeezy partnership um, and how that worked in, in ways that the Reebok deal did not and how you know Adidas was able to, to make more off of this brand that they you know, created with Ye basically from scratch. I know that he had had some issues with Nike before and stuff like that, but uh, how, how they had, you know, let's say not had to pay $3.8 billion to, to make that happen um, in the beginning. And I know in the end it cost them a lot of money, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of the way it, it fell apart, but, you know, building that brand uh, in the beginning, I think was a lot cheaper than anything, any close to what I had to pay for Reebok. It's crazy. I mean, one of the things that sticks out is that, Adidas became the brand that now has the cultural 
influence, right? They, of course, had the deal with Ye, which, I mean, second to Jordan, has been the most successful shoe celebrity partnership that we've ever seen. Unfortunately, we all know where that is now. But they also had the stuff with Pusha T. They also had stuff with certain artists. And they're also now combining with or not combining, but we see them partner with a lot of the NBA stars as well. They had the whole era of Tracy McGrady and T-Mac and even Robert Griffin III and people that were just popular like in the late 90s, the late 2000s and the early 2010s. And then Reebok didn't have any of those. What they did was they turned Reebok somehow in some way into a fitness brand. What about what Reebok was positioned and where you wanted it for turned it into a fitness brand. That's essentially what it is. In 2011, they had this partnership with CrossFit, which made sense. I mean, CrossFit was definitely uh, popular at the time, but why? Like, they, Why would you do it that way? But essentially, yeah, they gutted all the cultural parts and adapted them into Adidas itself. Yeah. So good for Adidas, not so good for Reebok. And, and then it kind of begs the question, you know, why didn't they just kind of go head on into culture a little more directly instead of buying this what became an albatross. Right. And he could have done it for cheaper than yeah. $4 billion. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I think that the other thing that this made me think of too, and I know we talked a little bit about this before as we we're prepping, it's not, at least the way that Adidas put made it seem, it's as almost as if like a brand couldn't live under this sub-brand. Like they couldn't have the two brands really live under each other. But we saw Nike able to do this. Nike was able to have Jordan be a sub-brand under Nike, but still be successful. But the way Adidas and Reebok had it, it was like the two brands were competing against each other. And the way that they framed it was they almost wanted internal competition, like the same way you and I have talked about how, you you know, Lucian and Universal Music Group, like, doesn't mind that Interscope and Def Jam and Republic are competing against each other to some extent. But it didn't, like, quite work out that way. It was like they're negotiating against themselves in a way and that just didn't work out for the brand yeah and i think with nike and jordan it just comes down to the jordan brand is so tied up in this one person right it has such a distinct identity and lineage and you know the shoes have this clear silhouette and you know what it is and you know nike didn't try to like compete too hard against that particular thing because how could it right i mean it jordan had such a identifiable lane and legacy and all of that and i think that Reebok didn't have quite as clear an identity and Adidas didn't have quite as clear an identity in the States anyway. And they, and they, and they got all mixed up. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of a recipe for, for disaster and, and maybe something that Adidas learned from ultimately. Uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, if, if you look at what happened with Yeezy, it was more of the, the Jordan style deal, right? Where it's, it's very tied up with one person. The shoes don't look anything like the other shoes really. Uh, and you're not, you're not like competing with yourself. You know, I'm sure there's some cannibalization, but like, you're not really going head to head in this murky kind of way. I guess I do see sometimes, you know, I wonder when, when you see like, uh, the, the Jordan logo on jerseys, that's interesting to me. It's like, that does seem to be Nike competing with itself. Um, and I guess there are certain, uh, sports where it makes more sense for it to be the Jordan brand. Um, but you know, like why Why was Derek Jeter a Jordan brand guy and not just a Nike guy? That's sort of weird. Right. Or, uh, like, the, yeah. or like Michigan football, the Wolverines. Yeah. Like yeah, they, yeah, had, yeah. they were a Jordan team. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's like I imagine that there is some light competition that happens, but never anything that seems like it's going to cannibalize the business, right? Like we talked earlier about LeBron going to Nike. 
LeBron could have been pitched by Jordan for all we know because we know Carmelo Anthony was a Nike guy or was a Jordan brand person and like went with them. But it could have been part of the whole, okay, LeBron being the chosen one and already kind of foreseeing not wanting to be under that. Like who knows? But I'm sure that there's some natural aspect where whether it's Chris Paul or others who chose Jordan brand, they could have also been pitched by Nike as well. But again, that's like light competition compared to some of these other internal things that structurally seemed. It's 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 one thing to go one athlete versus another. And Jordan sneakers have a clear, distinct look and feel. And I think that probably helps with it too. But I think that Adidas probably struggled with that to some extent, because even if you look at basketball, I believe at the time they had Tracy McGrady and Kevin Garnett as probably the most two prominent, like early mid 2000s Adidas stars. But then you still had AI and you had Shaq as the Reebok stars. So how do you line that up? I don't know if that necessarily was as like thought out the way that it was on the Nike side. Yeah. And it's fascinating how Shaq comes back into the picture for Reebok um, in, in the wake of the ABG uh, acquisition, right? But actually, before before we get there, I do want to talk a little bit about and ask you about the 2010s because that was an interesting part because I feel like with Reebok, there was this moment where they went back to try to get a bunch of these rappers, right? Like they had the partnership with Kendrick, Rick Ross, Future, eventually Cardi B. I think they brought Missy Elliott back on. So before like the eventual sale happens, they had tried to get back in the mix with Reebok and, you know, Rick Ross is shouting out Reebok and songs and stuff. But again, it just didn't quite click the way that they thought it was going to. You know, it, it felt like uh, too little too late. Right. And and by that point, you know, I mean, even even getting into hip hop in the early aughts, right, with Jay Z and Fifty Cent, that might have been too late <laughs> for, for for Reebok. You know, when let's say Adidas, even though it may have been sort of dormant as a as a big brand in hip hop and and, and culture in America, it had this heritage, you know, with Run DMC and and like going way back into into the history of hip hop. Um, you know, and Jordan, although you know not overtly hip hop, like embodied a lot of elements of the culture uh and you know the shoes obviously were were such a stylistic element that had been adopted um you know i i wonder if like the fact that you know all these artists came on but like kind of late and it wasn't in the dna as much it didn't feel quite as authentic i mean i wonder if that made it you know just a little bit like it never was going to work um I do think, though, I mean, there's some fascinating little tidbits in there that the Kendrick shoe, I think it was the Reebok shoe. He had one red and one blue in each pair, and it was sort of like, you, you know, uniting Bloods and Crips. And, you know, that's like a wild, awesome thing to do. I mean, what what a, what a great plan. But again, maybe too little too late. And, and one wonders if, if something like that had happened earlier, what the trajectory would have looked like for Reebok. Yeah, because I think what those deals felt like, they felt more like straight up endorsements and less like this broader vision. I think what made the Yeezy stand out is that there was such an identifiable connection. You could see Kanye making this. Like many of the people listening to this have seen the clip of you at Kanye's house and he literally has rows and dozens of designs and he's pointing you and showing them like, oh, hey, yeah, I was thinking about this one. I was thinking about that one. And None of those artists that I mentioned that partnered with Reebok, I can imagine them doing that with 
their Reebok shoes. I just can't because it seemed more like a straight-up endorsement as opposed to this broader vision. And I think that's one of the reasons why Yeezy worked so well. We saw Kanye struggling to try to get into fashion and, you know, feeding these people in the back of limousines and all these ridiculous stuff, interning with um, uh, Virgil at Fendi and stuff like that. Like, So we saw the journey and there was a natural tie-in where the other ones felt like, yeah, it's cool to see Reebok in the mix, but it felt more like a check. Yeah, and and I think, you know, Rick Ross and Cardi B have been pretty open about, in general, you know, they will take the check. Uh, and, and Kanye... You know, he has made and lost a lot of money, but you never got the sense that he was doing it for the money, right? Like he was always losing money because he was spending so much on trying to perfect whatever it was that he was doing, including the shoes. And, you know, he had the the uh, the Yeezys with Nike first and those, you know, those were not like big money makers for him, um, you know, but but it laid the groundwork, right? And and you, you could see him obsessing over that. And just like when I was out there in California with him, you know, you could see him looking at those shoes like like every single one of them was a child of his. I mean, it was like that level of passion and intensity and, you know, perfectionism, um, you know, and, and like, God, it would be, you know, I, that, that seems like a lot to put on a child, but maybe on a shoe, it's fine, you know? Yeah, that really rang true and I think worked with him in the product. And yeah, you're right. We know that Cardi B and Rick Ross, it's like, yeah pay me the money and I'll, and I'll do the thing, whether it's a feature and feature can be anything, whether it's showing up for an event or doing this. And yeah, like it, it all works out. All these people make good money, but it's interesting because obviously as this continues, the 2010s go on, Reebok is kind of doing its thing. It's clearly middling along as Adidas is continuing to rise and Adidas had a really strong 2010s thanks to Ye and thanks to the Ultra Boost and some of the other things they did. But by the time the pandemic comes around, Reebok is now looking to sell. And there's a few things in the mix. We saw a few entertainers getting involved. Master P, I talked to him on my podcast a couple years back when he was interested in the deal. And I know Shaq was one of the ones involved as well. And it's interesting with Shaq. And yeah, now I'd love to tap a little bit into him because he's such an interesting figure in all of this because it's now 30 plus years that he's had some affiliation with this brand, but also just doing well in business. Yeah, I mean, so ABG, who came in and, and bought Reebok, you know, they're an immense licensing business, um, you know, one of the biggest in, in the country, but the, in the world probably, but they started out uh, the, their founder was like, you know, basically resuscitating dormant brands. That was his idea. And he started out mainly with, um, at least in the current iteration of ABG with celebrity brands. So ABG still owns, uh, pieces of various celebrity estates, um, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, Muhammad Ali, in some cases, you know, most of the estate. And it was all about sort of taking something dormant or like, let's say, a brand that was not, you know, producing any more uh, content, to to put it one way. I don't like that word usually, but if you're dead, you're probably not producing content unless somebody's producing it for you. Um, but in, in finding the essence of it, right, like something that could be marketable. So with Marilyn Monroe, it was Chanel Number no. Five. She wore Chanel Number no. Five, and so that was a great deal they could do with the, you know, for the for the Marilyn Monroe estate. Um, and the expertise that he gained, uh, Jamie Salter is his name, the, the head of ABG, in, in sort of reviving these celebrity estates or, or you know, extending them, um, he, he, you know, also applied to dormant brands. 
Uh, so he's got, I think, Airwalk and Nautica and all these other, you know, I mean, the list goes on. Basically, if you imagine yourself in a mall in, you know, 1995 and you think about the brands that are floating around, ABG owns like half of them. Right. And and it's a licensing deal, right? They, you know, they get them produced, they put the name on, they do the marketing and, and that's that. And it's it's a great, it's a great freaking business. And they are in business with Shaq. So some time ago, uh, they paid, I think, like, several hundred million dollars to Shaq, uh, much of it in ABG stock to own um, something like half of the Shaq brand uh, so that basically, you know, ABG gets paid when Shaq gets paid. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why you see him out in so many commercials. Like he's got, you know, a really strong team uh, kind of pushing that out. But he also got, uh, you know, because he had uh, such a big amount of ABG stock that came back to him. I think he might be the largest individual shareholder besides Jamie Salter, the founder. He's very invested in, you know, sort of being a part of these brands that they have in their portfolio. So, you know, you see him pop up at like Sports Illustrated stuff. That's another ABG brand. Um, you see him, uh, you know, with various titles at Reebok, right? That's an ABG brand. Um, you know, he, he is uh, making himself wealthier as he makes these portfolio companies wealthier. And, um, and you know, I think it's like it's a pretty unique deal, and and it, but I think also just goes to show Shaq as sort of like an underrated businessman, you know, making moves. And you know, of course, the I think um, the deal does not include his DJ business and, and some of the other stuff that he does on the side, which was maybe part of the reason you see him out on the road, uh, you know, uh, spinning on the decks there. And uh, you know, but it uh, it does incentivize him to, you know, to get really behind something like Reebok, uh, which he does have this historical connection to. So, you know, it's kind of funny how it, how it comes full circle. That's the fascinating thing about him, because you hear about the Google deal, you hear about some of the other things that he's been involved with, but this deal, which may be one of the most lucrative that he's involved with, doesn't get discussed as much. And I think it's because a lot of people just don't understand ABG's business and even his involvement with the business. And even though Shaq himself was rumored to be involved with this group with him and Master P and Baron Davis that were part of the buying group that was trying to directly get the Reebok brand, he ended up with so much stake in the Reebok brand as well through the ABG. Yeah. And I I think part of the reason people don't talk about ABG that much is because it is, you know, by nature, like a background operator type of thing. It's not a brand in itself. It owns brands. And so, uh, you know, and, and I think that's kind of by design. It's the brands that get the shine, um, you know, and not ABG. But, you know, if you know, you know. And, and now you see sort of like how Shaq is connected to, you know, all these dots together. And with that... Reebok does fit within that house in a lot of ways. We mentioned you mentioned several of the brands. Reebok is one of those brands. So I'm interested to see how the brand's likeness and how things like that do get to be both beneficial for ABG, but how they get to continue the brand on. And one of the things we've seen, at least this past year, I think it was only a couple months ago, but they announced that both Shaq and Allen Iverson, the two most famous uh, NBA partnerships that they've had are now both executives for Reebok's basketball operations, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, it's great. And again, brings it full circle, makes it feel more authentic, um, you know, and, and Shaq really does have a, a piece of, of the company of, and so therefore of Reebok. So, you know, it, it doesn't feel quite as much like the Rick Ross or Cardi B uh, money grab type of situation. It's probably a good point to talk about just some of the missed opportunities, but I wonder, yeah, is it missed opportunities as much or just things that 
the kind of like we're talking about this conversation, Reebok was just late to the game. Yeah, I think it had a lot of great ideas and it just didn't execute them soon enough. Uh, and it might have been a different story if, you know, the Jay-Z deal had happened a few years earlier, um, you know, or if the 50 Cent deal had happened around his first album. But it never really works that way, right? You're not going to give 50 Cent. Nobody thought that 50 Cent, well, I don't know, maybe Dr. Dre and Eminem thought. But, you know, I, I don't know that you could have predicted that 50 Cent would have been as successful uh, as he as he would be with Get Rich or Die Trying and, like, the heat that he would bring, you know, in time to have his shoe lined up for that. And it is hard. It is really hard to sync uh, apparel and music. Um I remember, you know, Michael Jackson had a sneaker and it didn't do very well. I think part of it was because, uh, you know, it, it, well, it was kind of funny looking. Um, so, <laughs> but, but they were trying to sync it up with the, the release of whatever album it was. I think it was bad. And he kept pushing back and pushing back. And then the sneakers came out before the album because they were on this production schedule that was, you know, uh, detached. And, and, the, and like it didn't, it didn't have the, the juice going at the same time. Um, and so you can't really predict when somebody's going to be super hot at their, at their peak, um, where they might move the most sneakers. Not that 50 Cent and Jay-Z didn't move a lot of sneakers because they did. Uh, but like, you know, I guess you can't kind of like spin up a whole bunch of sneakers, you know, quite fast enough to take advantage of, of like a really hot album cycle. Um, but I think, yeah, if Reebok had gotten in a little earlier, things might've looked different if they'd gotten into hip hop a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think it definitely, that definitely could have happened. I also think time back to the whole leadership thing. It's like, I get it. Not everyone needs to try to build the next billion-dollar brand that's going to take over the world. But even though Reebok was quite successful at what it was doing in the 80s, if you're trying to get into the games of having your logo on the Dream Team, you're trying to get exclusive partnerships with the NFL and the NBA and keep those, you then need to be in the business of selling the broader vision of this brand, making sure that everyone buys into the marketing the way that Nike was clearly able to and the way that Adidas has leaned into, especially the past 12, uh, 15 years or so, how could they have done that? So even though the leadership necessarily wasn't as focused on that, I do think that was a bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah. You know, we talk about um, advertising, you know, paid versus earned, right? There was a lot of paid and and how do you get to the earned? Like that's, I think, how you how you have longevity. And I think that's where, you know, ultimately there was not enough, um, you know, and we, as we talked about maybe Reebok was on the right track um, before the Adidas deal. Maybe it would have kept gaining market share be back and, you know, to the point where it could have been competing like it was in the early 90s a little bit more. But um, yeah, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in terms of what Adidas could have done differently, I think we talked about that. Like they could have gotten into culture without paying $4 billion for this company yeah. that they essentially gutted. I think we agree there. But in terms of a dark horse moment, is there anything that Reebok doesn't get enough credit for that you think they should? Ooh, dark horse moment. I mean... You know, I think Reebok does get some credit for the pumps, um, but it, it kind of has remained like a bit of a novelty item. I know they brought them back here and there in one way or the other, but, you know, I, I don't remember in Austin Powers, there's that scene where, you know, he's like going trying to understand what the world was in the 90s and, you know, he's like pumping up the, the shoe and he gets really excited, he's pumping, 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 and then eventually bursts all over his face. Um, you know, I mean, that kind of encapsulates the power of that shoe. I mean, it was representative of an entire decade. Um, you know, like he, he didn't pull out a Jordan shoe, you know, and I guess there's not the slapstick element there. But um, I think uh, I think that 
the pumps were so freaking iconic. Um, people maybe don't give that enough credit, but you could also see that as a missed opportunity because they like weren't able to parlay that into like a, a long-term thing. Maybe it's just too gimmicky. Right, a, a, a true lasting brand. Yeah. I think that similarly, they did get a bunch of earned media over the years from different artists and different people that lean into this. Bruce Springsteen had worn the sneakers in one of his 80s music videos. Um, Sybil Shepard had worn some Adidas sneakers. I think it was the freestyles she wore to like the 1985 uh, Emmys or something like that. Juvenile had shouted out um, them in the song Ha. There was another song, maybe it was off of Ghetto Warfare, or another Hot Boy song that shouted out Reeboks. There was clearly points where in the 80s and 90s, people were leaning into the brand. They eventually did lean into having these direct partnerships in 2003. But I remember there was this quote where they said they're not trying to get celebrities to buy their shoes and stuff. But they had the pull. There was some earned media and interest there. And yeah, I'm not saying that you needed to have a Sybil Shepherd shoe, to be clear. Right, but right, like, right. whatever that could have been, I think, could have been cool. So, I mean, I know I probably framed that more as a missed opportunity the way I described it. But I do think that the dark horse aspect of it was that, yeah, there was some of this there. And then who won the most or lost the most? I'm going to go with a weird one here, maybe. Um, I'm going to say Jay-Z won the most. I don't know if you won the most, but let's just let's just go with this for a second. The S. Dot Carter sneaker, he got paid, whatever. It didn't become a long-lasting thing. However, he turned the sneaker into this thing called the S. Dot Carter Academy, which was sponsored by Reebok, uh, and it meant, you know, if you remember the S. Dot Carter Academy, you got like, I don't know, some endorsement deal, maybe some free shoes, but like you would, you know, you would flash the rock sign when you scored a touchdown or like, you know, dunked or something like that talk about earned media but it's earned media for jay-z it's not earned media for um for reebok and uh and then you know that kind of went away but then all these athletes were who were in the uh s dot carter academy then became clients for rock nation sports i think des bryant maybe jamal crawford and um i think some bigger names too and and at any case it put him on the footing uh to end up you know buying a piece of the nets then parlaying that into rock nation sports now parlaying Rock Nation Sports really into this um, seat at the table with the NFL. And as I think I said before, I think he's going to parlay that into owning an NFL team someday. Um, or maybe something even better than that. I don't know. But whatever it was, uh, just as Reebok you know, was kind of like paying Jay-Z to get more of a foothold in, in hip-hop and in culture, Jay-Z was using Reebok to get a foothold in sports. And you know, I think that that win that has become such a big part of his you know portfolio these days um to get paid to do that is you know i i would say uh like maybe secretly he was somebody among those who won the most from from reebok in, in the end that's solid yeah i didn't think about that connection but that that makes a lot of sense the one i have and i'll combine them one and lost the most i think it's alan iverson mm -hmm. i think he won the most because by him choosing a brand like reebok where he was the flagship person and they were trying to see what they could do i think it worked out really well for them i even think in the early 
2000s, how they were able to have Allen Iverson football jerseys that were being sold because of how popular his high school football highlights had been and just the stories about him needing to choose, having the opportunity to choose one or the other. That worked out really well for them. And just the economics of having a lifetime deal and some of the back-end stuff from that deal, it's crazy. And just what he's able to get, assuming that, you know, he carries on and lives into his 50s and 60s to be able to capture that is huge. So I think that was really cool to see. I do say loss, though, because part of the aspect of why I think that some of these brands and companies can live on is because the people attached to them continue to grow, too. Jordan brand continues to grow in its relevancy and by extension Nike because Jordan has just continued to ascend as a figure since he retired from the NBA 20 years ago now. From team ownership to then selling a team, billionaire in his own right, always being involved with stuff. In AI, it wasn't necessarily that way. We knew that he's had problems with alcohol over the years. I think, as we talked about earlier, he definitely took some licks from being so forward and unauthentic in in being authentic about who he was as a black man in this country and what tapped into him that those things combined I don't think he was able to necessarily reach those heights so it is unfortunate but could the band have been in a different position if someone like Allen Iverson was able to be a mogul in his own right the same way that MJ was it could have people looked at Reebok a little bit differently even from a loftier perspective so that's one thing that I do look up, think about but yeah both won the most and lost the most yeah I like that one yeah, yeah. I, I, I double-edged sword no that that makes a ton of sense but yeah with that anything else before we close things out on Reebok no, I think I think we nailed it. It was great to do it in person uh, for once. So uh, yeah, maybe the, maybe the first of many. I don't know. We'll I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think a regular when either of us are like visiting each yeah. other's towns, we'll try to line things up. Absolutely. But yeah, this is good. Yeah. But thanks, man. I'm thanks, already Dan. excited for the Adidas one too. Oh yeah, so, get yeah. All right. Awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.